we have inherited so many good things, gifts and talents and initiatives and programs, but we have to also acknowledge the wounds we have inherited, like not everything is perfect. I just read, look, and it was just so clear to me that in able to have that a strength to resist the gods of power and money, to resist the powers and principalities, we need to heal first. Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy, with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called The Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. everyone, Claire here. Today we have the honor and privilege of speaking with Alma Tinoco Ruiz about a sermon she gave on Jesus's temptation in the desert found in Luke chapter four. After hearing the sermon, Dana and I were both so excited to talk to Alma about her work on generational trauma, healing, and Jesus. Alma is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church and a practical theologian whose work centers on the intersection of homiletics, pastoral care, and evangelism. She currently serves as a professor at Duke Divinity School, where I actually had her as an assistant in my preaching class, and she was Dana's mission and evangelism professor. So Alma is near and dear to both of our hearts, and we had such a great conversation with her today. So if you have not already listened to her sermon, I highly recommend pausing the episode right here, going into our show notes, and listening to her sermon on Jesus, trauma, healing, and Lent. We've even included a link to the manuscript if you would prefer to read her sermon or read along as you listen. We hope you enjoy. Here we are again. Claire and I are so excited to be interviewing Alma Tinoco Ruiz from Duke Divinity where Claire and I both went to seminary. And so she has an amazing place in our hearts. And we are just so thankful that she's joining us for this Lenten journey. And we're going to talk to her about her vision of Lent and her theme on Lent. So with that, I want to just dive in. Thank you for being here. And can you just tell us a little bit about how you think about Lent and what shaped your Lenten experience this season? Yes, it's so, I'm so happy to be with you too. Yeah, I mean, until recently, Lent was a time to of penance, you know, to give up something and always thinking like, what should I give up this time? And sometimes it was chocolate because I love chocolate or social media, which is not a temptation to me now. I'm not social media, but I also heard one sermon, a sermon from a friend that she said, instead of giving up, especially during the pandemic, instead of giving up, take something that brings you joy. And so that's another approach that I took uh, last two years. But as I was starting for my dissertation, you know, about trauma and trauma-informed ministry and 
soul wounds and historical trauma and the effects and consequences of the wounds that our ancestors experienced and how we sometimes inherit that. I just thought about Lent as a time of healing and inspired, you know, by the temptations Jesus experienced in the desert. What if instead of seeing Lent as a time of penance, we see it as a time to celebrate our communion with God and to experience healing? A time of healing and preparation and transformation to be able to do ministry. I mean, ministry requires a lot, and you know this. Uh, it takes a lot from us, and I think uh, doing ministry with pastors, teaching and, and being in community with them. And just by being a pastor myself, I know that sometimes we don't take that time and don't even acknowledge, you know, our wounds. And so it is important to, for me, it's not only Lent, but just to embark in a lifelong journey of self-reflection and awareness. And so you've mentioned things like soul wounds and trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about how, how do you define these these terms, these concepts? Well, soul wounds, I learned that term from Eduardo Duran, who is a Mexican and Native American, and he is a counselor and he works with Native Americans communities. And he wrote this book that I just love, um, Healing Soul Wounds. And so I took that term from him. Amenekam uh, also uses that term. He took it from Duran too in his book, My Grandmother's Hands. I think it's so powerful because it, it talks about trauma as, as, and soul is my name also, Alma, but it's powerful because it's something about, you know, soul, the spirit. It's not just something that we experience up here. It's something that is experienced in the body and that includes everything we are. And so that's a term that is comes from the way Native American people use, talk about what we understand as trauma. That's so interesting. So something that Dana and I were talking about as we were preparing for this conversation and after we read and listened to your sermon was how you walk through a few examples of Jesus's ancestors and these imperfect family patterns in, in Jesus's family. And Dana was mentioning, you know, wow, like this might be con controversial for some people to hear because people think of Jesus as as this perfect figure. We have inherited gifts and talents from our genealogy, but most likely also wounds. Jesus is no exception. The genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1, 1 to 25 and Luke 3, 23 to 38 reminds us that Jesus, the Son of God, is human and came from an imperfect family like most of us. But in your sermon, you point out, you know, Jesus had imperfect family problems, imperfect things that were, were passed, passed down to him and, and in need of healing. So can you tell us a little bit more about the genealogy of Jesus and how you dug into this? I have lots of questions on this, but that'll be my first one. I mean, if we believe in Jesus' incarnation, Jesus's incarnation, we need to believe that he was one of us, you know, a human being. 
human and divine. And by this, I'm not trying to take away Jesus' divinity, not at all. But I trying to understand that Jesus human as me. And someone, I mean, the scriptures show us his genealogy. And we can see that it was not a perfect genealogy. So, and I reflected first, and this is included in my dissertation, but I reflected first uh, because I was invited to preach in Hispanic Heritage Month celebration. And I just couldn't think about, I mean, we have inherited so many good things, you know, and I could think about many Hispanic Latinx people in the U.S. who have done amazing things and that I could name in my sermon. But I also could think about things we have inherited that are not so good. And it just made me think about human beings, you know, my own genealogy. And then I went to scripture and I see Jesus as any one of us human who came to be like one of us. And Luke presented it to me so clearly, at least that's how I saw it at that moment. Because I saw his genealogy and reading through his genealogy. And then Matthew gives me more details about about it includes more to me more information about it and so I was just like oh wow but Luke presents uh, genealogy and then the temptations and then it's Jesus beginning the beginning of his ministry and as a pastor I could see and, and as someone who works you know teaching future pastors and some of them are already pastors I can see how we need that healing and so it was just like, yeah, all of us come to ministry, bringing our own history, bringing amazing gifts, amazing talents, amazing things that we have inherited from our ancestors. But we also need to acknowledge that sometimes we bring the effects and consequences of our ancestors' wounds, soul wounds, if we, if we call it like that. You know, our ancestors' open wounds and our ancestors' trauma. And so I think it's important to acknowledge both. It's not that just, you know, the good things or the bad things. It's important to acknowledge both. And I just saw it like that with Jesus. Wow, what an amazing time to be for 40 days in the desert, healing, you know. And that was an invitation for me to experience Lent as that, as a time of healing. And it might be not from wounds that we have inherited from our ancestors or the effects and consequences of their trauma, but it could be um, the trauma that I have experienced, the trauma that we have experienced collectively, um, the trauma that we continue, you know, some of us continue experiencing traumatic stress. And so it could be all of that. It's a good time to, to seek healing and harmony. There's so much there because one, I just am thinking for me, Showing Jesus's humanity only makes me feel more connected to Jesus. Only makes me say, Oh, I can see how the, how the Bible, how this narrative, how this man is living today, like is alive in the world today. And so I see it as just, wow, this makes me connect to, to who Jesus is. And I can see myself in that. And it goes back to, you know, God, we're, we're creating the image of God. Right. And so. That's something that I took from it, which I thought was just really powerful. And then also, I also hear from you, which I love, is it's not either or, it's and both. It's acknowledging, yeah, there's great things that that have come from our history. And there's also really difficult, not such great things. And we have to acknowledge both of those things and hold them. And it doesn't, it's not good or bad. It's beautiful because that's how we evolve and grow as people and as Christians. Yeah, and understanding that we don't have to be perfect, you know, to be present for others and to do ministry and to be agents of healing. 
for others and for God's creation. But it's important to acknowledge, you know, if we have open wounds, to acknowledge them and take care of them. It doesn't mean that they have to be healed before we, you know, do ministry or enjoy, I mean, become agents of healing for others. But it's just to be aware of that is important to be able to take care of ourselves at the same time that we're taking care of others. And the awareness, the awareness, knowing the open wounds that we might be still struggling with is, I think is very important. When you delivered this message, this sermon, were the response, I'm just kind of curious because you're presenting it, you know, as, you know, Jesus had wounds from his from his ancestry from his history and he's going into the desert and we'll talk a little bit more deeper about this is addressing those three temptations but he went in there for healing was it well received were people questioning like wow i never thought about it that way you know that once i had there were some uh, latin students from duke present and uh, latinx students and so they really connected with that because they were like yes i mean i'm sitting here thinking i'm about my family back home and the things that I we are struggling with as a family and at the same time thinking how in the world will I be able to do ministry if I if there is a mess back home if there are so many issues at home that we need to deal with how in the world and so they found that very helpful and we had a really good conversation after that because they were like yes and they started telling me their stories their homes their families their you know, ancestors and what they had been dealing with, the things, the effects and consequences of their ancestors' uh, wounds that they had been dealing with. And so that that opened, yeah, we had really good conversation about it. And they were like, yes, I can definitely connect. They felt encouraged to do ministry. Like, yes, I can do it. You know, because they were sitting there and some of them left home and home was a mess or they were feeling bad because I should be present there for my family because my family is going through this. And so they were doubting, should I be here? Maybe I shouldn't. I'm not ready. I'm not, you know, equipped. I'm not ready to do this. But when I shared this message with them, they were like, yes, we can do it. We just need, you know, and they saw their time at Duke as the preparation, as their Lent, you know, a long Lent, a time of preparation, a time of healing and excited about, let's do this. Like, let's talk about it because that opened the conversation too. It's just amazing. Open the conversation for them to tell me this is happening in my house. This happened or I'm dealing with this. And we had been having conversations after that. It was just not just one, right? It's like these are students with whom I am in community with. We have regular conversations and, and we continue talking about this. We talk about ignoracial trauma. We talk about microaggressions. We talk about all these things continually. So for them, it was like, yeah, it's a good journey, you know, to start now that I am getting ready for ministry. That's so good that they can hear that before they go into ministry. I, I listened to a podcast and went to a clergy group yesterday where we talked about it. And the podcast was about clergy burnout and specifically about a pastor who had developed PTSD and a tremor because of things that have gone on at his appointment. And he's one of many people. I mean, not every pastor is developing a tremor, but I, I have personal friends who are pastors who do have PTSD from their, from their work and clergy burnout, especially after the pandemic is just like at an all time high. And so the fact that you're able to deliver this and and throw these ideas around with fellow pastors and pastors in that training ground, I think is so, so significant. 
it creates space to have, to talk about trauma and wounds. And I think, and you, you, you say this in your sermon, you know, being able to name it, to acknowledge it, to put it out there. I mean, that's the first step. For us to be available for healthy relationships with God, ourselves, our communities, and the earth, we must remain accountable to our contemplative and spiritual practices. The healing process requires us to be more available to ourselves and more willing to feel and stay with the authentic emotions resulting from our experiences in life. Only when we know our woundedness well can we be present with the woundedness of others and of God's creation. I mean, so often we think, oh, we just have to, you know, hold it in or, and we can, I love the end of the message where you talk about oftentimes in Christianity, we use it as an amulet and we throw a Bible verse at it. Like it's just, and that is not how it works. Can you talk a little bit more about, yeah, explore on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I come, I'll let you, I'll tell you a little bit of my background. So I was I raised Catholic, though nominal Catholics. My parents didn't go to church except for quinceañeras and weddings and baptisms. But I went to church when I was a teenager by myself. And then I became Protestant and I joined the Assembly of God Church when I was like 18 year old no younger than that 17 maybe i really learned a lot from the pentecostal church i learned a lot i mean it's part of now i see everything as very important for my growth as a christian and my journey uh with god and and so i wouldn't yeah it was really important but i also experienced that how we would use faith as an emulate you know and repeat these verses say these verses and and we sometimes didn't go as deep as we should. You know, it's, I mean, doing ministry, I can see that we can use bandages to cover wounds, but sooner or later, that wound will start bleeding again. And sooner or later, that will affect you. And sooner or later, your body will start manifesting the pain and the blood that is coming, you know, from that wound. Like, I have seen it over and over again. And so I really hope that we can address things for what they are, not try to bench. I mean, the scripture is, it help us heal. It help us memorizing the scripture. And I can tell you how many times people have told me the only way I can continue going is because I keep repeating to myself these verses every morning. And that's good. It helps us to the day-to-day life. It gives us that hope that, yes, God is with me. I'm not alone. God is with me today. That gives us that hope. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it. I think it helps us a lot. But in the long run, it is important that we just not only because we live, you know, the day to day. Today I can get up. I I believe God is with me and then deal with tomorrow. And we can do it. But in the long run, I think it's important to acknowledge a name, acknowledge and validate that pain and validate and acknowledge the open wounds. And your whole image of Jesus in this sermon, I think, speaks to that because you're not saying, oh, go talk to Jesus and all of your wounds and your traumas are, will be healed. You're saying that this might be a lifelong thing that you have to work through just as Jesus did. But because we saw Jesus do that, we can do that. And Jesus walks with us and is with us in that. 
Jesus had to experience his healing and transformation in his own life before beginning his ministry of bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, setting free those who are oppressed and proclaiming the year of the Lord's Savior. Yes, I mean, I I think it's for me personally and my students share this too you know it's powerful to see that wow yeah this is i mean if we believe that he was a human uh that he came as a human being to this world then we believe that was dealing with so many things that we deal with and as i said in the sermon and some things are not even mentioned like in our own families you know some things we just don't talk about it this is just what a scripture tells us but in mind what else is out is there in his genealogy going back i mean you know claire and i and, and our other uh, co-pastor chelsea i mean we've We've worked with and partnered with several people who have been in the church and have been wounded by the church where they have tried to just put a Band-Aid on it or said, be this way, don't be that way, and you'll be fine. Never really acknowledging the pain and the suffering that many marginalized and oppressed people have gone through. And the church has done that. They've been responsible and contributed to that. And that kind of gets into the collective nature of the wound. But that's also what I hear is, you know, the church is sometimes is responsible and, and for this. I think we should be a place of healing. I mean, we should be a place in which we acknowledge the historical wounds. We acknowledge intergenerational trauma. We acknowledge how we hurt each other. Uh, it, I mean, I know it can sound like an utopia, you know, perfect life. It's not, not that. I know as long as we live in this world, we will not be able to live a perfect life. But at least to create a spaces, and um, there is a group of psychologists that call this sanctuary spaces. Sanctuary spaces. Peter Levine calls it, you know, relative safe, relative safe environments. So environments of relative safety. And so, how can churches become that? I mean, people outside theology, outside the church, psychologists get it. People need sanctuary spaces. People need environments that provide relative safety. And can the church get it too? I mean, that should be a place of healing. That should be a place where people feel safe. And it doesn't mean that we'll be able to protect people from suffering, from disease, from experiencing racism out there, from experiencing safe. I'm not saying that we, we cannot do that as much as we wish we could. But we can provide sanctuary spaces. We can provide spaces where people feel safe and spaces of healing. Have you seen examples of this in your work or in your experience? I have seen it. Uh, you know, I had been doing ministry for more than uh, yeah, 20 years now with uh, Hispanic Latinx uh, people in the U.S. Most of the people from my congregation have been undocumented immigrants. And so we have, I have seen it there, the way they can come to church and feel that it's a sanctuary space, uh, the way we have community, the way we help with things that they cannot do because they don't have a driver's license or the social security num number. And so we have tried to protect people from being deported. We did it once, literally, surrounding a car trying to protect. We couldn't. But... By worshiping together, by being a community, by being there, being present for them and understanding the uncertainty that 
trauma, the continuous trauma and stress that they are exposed to daily, we try to provide that sanctuary space, that environment of relative safety. Yeah, that's where I have seen it best. Sounds like a great, that's, that's an example for sure, right there. We just need more of them. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, there's so, and I'll tell you this, the last congregation that I served, we had youth who didn't speak Spanish and didn't understand Spanish very well. And so we had an English speaking congregation, a Spanish speaking one. And so, you know, we asked them one time, do you want to go to the English speaking worship service? It's okay. And they were like, no, we want to be here because this is our community. This is our space. This is our family. And so we are talking about youth who have to deal with racism, microaggression, you know, youth who deal with ethno-racial trauma out there in a school, at work, out there, everywhere. And this community was their sanctuary space. They didn't understand everything we said. <laughs> they didn't understand the whole sermon, but they love to be there. They love to give people hugs. They love to be in that space that was a sanctuary for them. And that was such a clear example for me that we need these spaces. We need these spaces, not only for Spanish-speaking people, for English-speaking people who need to get out of all of that and feel and feel that they are in a sanctuary space. Mm, I love that. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, people, especially kids and teenagers, like all they need to hear is that they're loved. And that show, you know, because they would get there and they people would show their love. And even if they couldn't communicate with all their brothers and sisters in Christ, they just they just love being hugged and being being acknowledged by them and knowing that they were part of that. Well, I mean, this is what we we talk about. We as a collective, the collective table talks about when you're in relationship with others, with yourself. I mean, it's just everything becomes more expansive. There's a wholeness to it, right? There's little, to me, I always think there's little glimpses of shalom that we can connect onto because God created us to be connected to one another. God created us to be in relationship. And when we can build that community, it's just a really joyous space. And you're right. It's nothing in the scriptures, nothing in the world says, oh, you're not going to have pain and suffering and death in your life. You're going to. But boy, if we could have a, a, a community that surrounded us and supported us and loved on us, how amazing that would be. And it's, you know, it's being in relationship with each other, um, not just like, oh, we will be here and I'll give them all their love. It's mutual. It's just being community, being mutual love, mutual understanding, and the importance of having a space where where you are listened to, you know, listening to each other, being present for each other, I think is, is just essential. Before we end, I do want to talk a little bit about the temptation and I don't want to go into all of them because I really feel like this was such a beautiful part of the sermon. And I encourage people to either read and or listen to the sermon. We're going to have both available. But, you you know, there's three temptations that that Jesus faces in the desert and you connect them back to the genealogy. Can you share one of those with us and, and, and what came out for you? So, you know, when the devil brings Jesus to that top uh, to the high place. That was the, the one that I was like, oh, uh, to the high place and see everything you see can be yours. And it was just thinking about David that he went to the top of his palace, the pinnacle of his palace and saw, and saw Bathsheba and thinking everything I see can be mine. And that was one that I was uh, thinking, wow, you know, that's 
that's the when Oscar Romero thinks about these temptations as saying no to the gods of power and money, that's true. That's true too, you know, saying no to the god of power that tells you everything you see is yours. And so by Jesus saying, you know, no to that for me is healing that, that in his life, that healing also his own ancestors. He does the opposite of what David does. And for th those listening who may not know who Oscar Romero is, can you please share? Oscar Romero uh, was the Archbishop of San Salvador from 1977 to 1980. He was, you know, he was, he's such a good example to me because he evolved in his faith. You know, I think that's that we don't have to keep being the same person we are just because this is who we are. He acknowledged that the country was experiencing the poor and the campesinos, the campesinas, and the poor people were experiencing oppression, marginalization. I mean, excruciating oppression. They were being killed, tortured, arrested, disappeared. Women were raped. I mean, horrible things. And so he realized that he needed to take a stand and he realized that he needed to evolve in his faith. The faith that before that was more people would say now, you know, conservative, like respecting the church, respecting the authorities and being a good relationship uh, with them and not being like very, uh, how, what would that word? Like not, not making waves. Confronting. Yes. Not being confrontational in the sermons, you know, being careful about all that. When, when he realized when his best friend, one of his best friends, Rutilio Grande was killed for working with the people in the ministry with the poor and, and help being the poor organized. So he realized that he had to go in his faith too. And he realized that people were left without a pastor because Rutilio Grande was killed. And so he decided to take a stand. So some people call it a, a conversion. He said that he sees it more as an evolution, as a development in his faith. And I love it. I just love it because I'm like, listen, everyone. Yes, we can keep evolving in our faith. You know, we can keep growing. We can keep experiencing transformation. We can experience healing. You know, if we didn't acknowledge before our wounds and, and maybe we have hurt others because of that, it's not late. We can experience healing and we can evolve in our faith and in our way of doing ministry. Oh, amen. I love that. So as we end, we have a very a question that we ask everybody. Claire, I'm going to have you do it because I always mess it up. <laughs> You've already touched on this a little bit with talking about the church as a space of healing, but something we always ask all of our guests are, what is your hope for the future of the church? Yeah, I think I have said a lot about my hope for the future of the church. My hope for the future of the church is that, you know, we see each other as we are and try to understand our life stories. You know, I think it's very easy to judge each other and to preach sermons that condemn people. You know, it's very easy to do that. But it's more difficult to see each other as someone with a history, with a life experience. I think we can see, I hope we can see each other as human beings who have a history, who have a life experience, and help listen to each other and have empathy for each other. But empathy, you know, we usually think about empathy as feeling with each other. Uh, but Emmanuel Larty taught me through his books that empathy is also affective level, cognitive level, and cognitive level. So empathy means feeling with others, thinking 
with others and also acting with others. And so it's not just saying, oh, I feel with you, but think with that person. And so, and, and acting with that person. And so that's why listening to each other is very important. I hope that we as a church are willing to listen to each other because that's the only way that we can have empathy for each other. Bringing your whole self yes. to one another. That's so, that's so beautiful. The whole body. And you know, it doesn't mean that how oh, it will be perfect. It will be messy. We live in a fallen world. Nothing will be perfect, but I think it would be amazing if we tried to do it. And I mean, after learning about being more informed about trauma, when I have a situation with someone, I'm just, instead of re overreacting and saying like, what are you saying? You offended me. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I think I touched an open wound. That's why you are reacting like this, you know, and try to understand what is going on, what is behind this insulting words of this unkind behavior. You know, what is behind all this? But I think the only way we can develop that is by understanding that people have a history and sometimes that history could be painful. And that's hard. You're right. It's a mess. It's messy work. It's, it's difficult work. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, are you, will you be working on, on incorporating any of this work into things that people can use in the church community? Cause I mean, I just think this is such a creative, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of books that will definitely promote. Um, I've read, well, because of your classes. <laughs> I assigned this, so you have to read it. I hope, I hope you read them. I did read them, and my and I know my Duke friends are going to be listening to this, so that I know they read them too. But is there any? Is there a way to connect? Because you know this this is a this is a heavy topic. So how do we how do we take it into the congregations and make it accessible to all people? I mean, I think every context is so different, right? And so it's like I cannot give one answer that will fit everyone. Every context is very different. But I think that it takes one person to start talking about it and say like, why don't we talk about it in the Bible study in a small group in. You know, my, my dissertation is focused on sermons. How do we acknowledge, you know, name, uh, acknowledge and validate the trauma that people experience? And so I use Oscar Romero's, uh, I think Oscar Romero's, Oscar Romero provides a theological, hermeneutical and pastoral framework for preaching to traumatized communities. And so that I would like to make it available for people and especially for preachers. But I think this is something that we all, we all are ministers. It doesn't matter if you are ordained or not. We are invited to join in Jesus' mission in this earth and Jesus' ministry in this earth. And so we can start conversations. I mean, even with our own families, uh, we can start conversations. But I do think that it is important and it's our responsibility uh, to be informed, especially for ministers, but it's for everyone to be informed. Um, about trauma and, and its effects and consequences. I think it helps a lot to in our relationships with people. Alma, thank you so much for joining us. I know that our listeners are in for a treat listening to this conversation. And it's been great to to catch up. It's really cool to my preaching preceptor. Um, it makes me so happy to see my two students in action and doing amazing ministry, amazing work. This is like, yes. It's amazing. It's good. It's, it's really good to see you and see, you know, what you are doing. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. 
The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective